Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We're going to kick off this chapter this morning. Um, and we'll be in this one a little longer than we were in chapter 1 because there's so much more uh, that, that I think. I, I think we're going to be in it five or six weeks if I had to guess. Go ahead and kind of warn you. Um, we're going to have to take a break from Acts uh, for the next three weeks. So next week is the, the Christmas program. Uh, and I'll be bringing a, a more brief message uh, about Christmas. Then in two weeks from today, uh, Brother Brian Connard is scheduled to be with us preaching anyway. And I know what was said earlier about the Wednesday night. So Brian, uh, one of our missionaries uh, to Africa, uh, one of our, our South Carolina boys who is, the Lord has led he and his wife to be missionaries to Africa, he'll be with us on the 18th. And then, of course, the 25th is Sunday. That is a Sunday morning. And uh, I'm already looking forward to you guys being here. Um, I'll sit, look forward to seeing you here on Christmas morning. Uh, I had someone tell me, well, I don't, I don't even want to go down that road. I had someone tell me that their church is going to do only stream service that day. And, and to me, that was just like really weird. It's like, uh, I didn't get that. Uh, and I heard someone making a defense of why he might do that. And they're going to have a Saturday night service. But can I just encourage you? Uh, we are for family. We are for family. Absolutely. And family outranks church. Family outranks church in the whole scheme of things. But your church, if you're born again, your church family is also that family. Okay? But what I would encourage you is don't let every seven years when our man-made traditions and culture that we've built in America, I'm not preaching against that. I'm just saying every seven years when those collide, when Christmas falls on, on, on a Sunday, don't let that be such that like, oh, I'm going to forsake the Lord's house because we got to do our normal routine um, on Sunday morning that we do. Like, okay, what you're basically telling all your neighbors like, imagine if we were that church that we decided, hey, we're not going to have church here. We'll only do a little pre-recorded thing, and you kind of watch that whenever it's nice and convenient. What would we be telling our neighbors here, and what would we be telling every car that drives by? Like, oh, you guys say that's important, but when push comes to shove, you're the same as us. That's what you'd be saying. So don't let your neighbors get that impression of you, all right? There, that was my little pastoral speech. We'll be looking forward to seeing you that morning. Uh, and bring you, say, I've got family coming in. Great. All the more. We'll put out more chairs if we need to. Bring them with you. Awesome. Thank you. All right. Acts chapter 2. In a moment, we're going to read only the first four verses. Uh, there'll be plenty there for us this morning. And I'm going to do a brief review. So many of you have been with us. So here's where we're at. Jesus has just ascended to heaven in chapter number 1. But before that, after his resurrection, he presented himself alive to his apostles he appeared and then he would disappear. He would appear and disappear for 40 days. They're absolutely convinced they know that he is alive after his death. They know that for a fact. And then he tells them a command, go wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. Wait for the promise of the Father, which is going to be the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So go wait in Jerusalem. They've been given a command to go evangelize the world, tell the world about the meaning of the, of the death and resurrection of Christ and salvation. But first, they are to wait. Before going in and be a witness, they are to wait. And then there, just outside of Jerusalem, the Lord ascends. And what do they do? They go back into Jerusalem, and they're living together in this upper room. And it ends up being more than just the apostles. There's 120 of, of them who are believers in Christ, and they're waiting for the promise of the Father, which was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And they're going down to the temple, 
and praising God there, but ultimately they're mainly praying. That seems to be the main thing. They keep devoting themselves to prayer. At the end of chapter 1, we saw a little bit of a business aspect that they needed to take care of. The Lord led the apostle Peter to say, we need to have a meeting to replace Judas because Judas betrayed the Lord. And there's going to be 12 apostles sitting on 12 thrones over the 12 tribes of Israel in the millennial kingdom. And so they had a meeting and now Matthias is, the he took Judas's place. So that's where we finish last. So now they're in this upper room again, coming and going to the temple. But we're going to find them, I believe the location, it doesn't say it specifically. I believe this is still the 120 and I believe that it is still the upper room that we're about to read in verse 1. So the Lord said the promise of the Father which is the baptism of the Spirit is going to come not many days from now. It won't be, it's just going to be days. And that was said like 8, 9, 10 days before this. So just a little bit before this and now we get to verse number 1. Would you read it in your Bible? And by the way I would encourage you to follow along today. Some of the things we're going to be touching on today, I believe I want to, I want to encourage you, I believe they're very important it's going to be kind of a full, man, you've got to pay attention, and you ought to be asking the Lord right now, Lord, show me these truths. Let Jeff rightly divide the word of truth, and if he's not, then let it go right over me and not even stick with me. But if something is true, let it stick within my heart and help me have greater understanding, because I think there's some very important things that may answer some of our questions, some of our dilemmas, as we start heading into chapter 2. Look at verse number 1. So we're waiting in the upper room, and then verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. That doesn't just mean they're geographically together. The King James would word it. Uh, they were all in one accord. Literally, their heart is knit together. They're of one passion, one mind. We talked about that back in chapter 1, verse 14. They are unified. No more rivalries among the apostles and their mothers about who's going to be the most powerful in the kingdom. That's all been laid aside. They're unified. Look again, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. So they're in one place, but they're together. Unity is there. And suddenly, suddenly, there came from heaven a sound, a sound like a mighty rushing Wind. That's what's happening in this room. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. They're sitting in this house, this room, and this sound of a rushing mighty wind comes from heaven. And suddenly it fills the whole room, the whole house. And, it's not done, divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Like all around the room. There's this divided tongue, this flame that is sitting literally on top of all the people, presuming the 120 all have it on them. Verse 4, and they were all filled, not just the apostles, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak. They all were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to... How many began to speak? They all began to speak. How many were filled? They were all filled. Verse 4. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Let's notice three things this morning. We're going to spend longer in verse 4. Obviously, it has kind of two parts to it. But we need to spend some time in verse 1, and then verse 2 and 3, we'll do those together, and then we'll get to verse 4. Notice with me, number 1, the Feast of Pentecost. In verse number 1, the Feast of Pentecost. I'm not going to have a, a, raise, a, a show of hands, 
Because I know that some of you know what this is, but many of you right now, let's just be honest, you're like, I don't know what the day of Pentecost is. You, you, you make a mental association of the day of Pentecost with something, but what was it really? The day of Pentecost was a feast. It was the day that kicked off a feast. It was one of the three Jewish feasts in which males that were 20 years old and upward, we have a lot of males this morning, probably have more men in the room than we do women, which is a, a good thing. I mean, it's a great thing. No offense, ladies, probably shouldn't have said it. I, I just like churches that, have, that are full of men. That's an awesome thing because most churches are full of more women than men. So thank you, men, for being here this morning. Thank you, ladies, for being I'm digging a deeper hole. I really, I'm so thankful for all you ladies being here this morning, just as thankful for you ladies. Uh, am I out of that hole yet? Okay. Don't, please don't be mad at me. All right. All Jewish males, 20 years old and up, were expected to go to these three feasts. But especially if you lived within 20 miles of Jerusalem, 20 miles, then you were required to be at the feast if you were a Jew, 20 years old and up. So here's the three feasts. In like April, usually April, you had Passover. And then like in June, here you had the Pentecost. And then in the fall, you would have the, the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. So you got spring, then one in the summer, and then one in the fall. Write this down. The word Pentecost itself means 50th, and it means 50 days. It points to the feast that is 50 days after Passover. So you have Passover there in April. 50 days later in June, you, they would have Pentecost. So as you're writing that, I want to keep moving. So we want to get a quick feel. I want two main things I want to impress upon your mind. One, what was this Pentecost about in their world? Because we've made associations with it. But we need to go back into the Jewish world back 2,000 years ago. What did Pentecost mean to them? All right, everybody got that? You ready? Here's kind of the two things. I'm going to start with the, the secondary. Not originally, but eventually, the Jews started looking at Pentecost as a time to celebrate the receiving of the law. I'm not going to guarantee their numbers are right, but apparently they did some calculations. Passover celebrated when God led them out of Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt, led them out through the Red Sea. And they may have done some calculation to when they got to the Mount Sinai and received the law of God. And they must have calculated that was 50 days. And so later on they started including with Pentecost a celebration of the receiving of the law of God that made them who they are. But... The primary aspect of the, of the Feast of Pentecost was not that. A commentator by the name of N.T. Wright helps us understand. So here's what I want you to get. What was Pentecost actually? He says, day of Pentecost was the day when farmers, not everybody was farmer, but Jewish farmers, brought the first sheaf of wheat from the crop and offered it to God, partly as a sign of gratitude and partly as a prayer that all the rest of the crop, too, would be safely gathered in. So did you catch it? The wheat harvest is starting to come in there in the summertime. And they cut the first sheaves of wheat, the first fruits of the wheat harvest. They don't sell it to make money. They don't grind it and cook it and eat it. This goes to the Lord. So this principle runs all through Scripture. As God blesses us, the first thing we do is give back to the Lord. Well, this is what they do. But I want you to feel something here. Is there a lesson? There's going to be, when we finally get to verse 41, there's going to be 3,000 souls who are saved. What we're reading today is the kickoff of the church. 
The Holy Spirit is going to come down and the church is born. And there's 120 receive the Holy Spirit and then 3,000 more are added. It's as though the Lord wants us to understand that these 3,000 souls that are added in verse 41 are like the first fruits of the billions more that are going to come and make up the church, the body of Christ. So this is the first fruits. Now, I hope you caught what I just said. The context of Pentecost is that feast, harvest, and the other context, the main context of this is back in chapter 1, verse 5, the the, the Holy Spirit's going to come, and then verse 8, when He comes, He's going to give you power to be witnesses unto Christ to the uttermost part of the earth. Now, here's a problem that we're already feeling. The word Pentecost or Pentecostal or Pentecostal power has been so abused and misapplied and monopolized by one group of people that most people, when they hear the word Pentecost, Pentecostal power of God, they associate it only with verse 4b. They associate it only with speaking in tongues. But the real context is, the real association is, a spiritual harvest of souls from all around the world. It is, the context is real. The association is really about world evangelization, evangelizing the nations. That's the context of what we're reading. Some have totally misapplied it into one main aspect. Second thing I want you to get before we go to our second point. Second point. Newsflash. God's really smart. He's wise. Follow me. It's not an accident that of all the time periods that Jesus could have died on the cross for our sins, that God chose Passover. I know we're going to talk about Pentecost. It's not an accident that God allowed his son to die like literally the day of Passover. So all these Jews, hundreds of thousands at the the most conservative estimate, perhaps over 2 million Jews just descending in the city of Jerusalem at the liberal estimate. And what's going to happen? They're going to go home. All these Jewish males, now many of them would bring their family and their children and their wives, but many wives and children didn't come. Picture as they go back home after Passover, and they get back home, and you picture it. You've been gone. Your wife's at the kitchen sink. She's doing the dishes. Here comes little kids or the daughter or whatever. Hey, daddy and the brothers are back home. Oh, great. How was the feast? Was it good? Uh, Yeah, we got to talk. Get everybody together. Oh, was Jesus there? Get everybody together. We got to talk. Picture it. And then he starts going through. Oh, Jesus was there. They, our own leaders, arrested him. They condemned him as, in their minds, a blasphemer. And they turned him over to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, who didn't want to do anything with kept trying to turn him loose. But they insisted, oh, and here, you got to get it. They killed him. What? Listen, you got to hear the whole thing. They, they didn't just kill him. They brutally beat him and then cruci- crucified him. Honey, you got to hear the whole thing. He died. They buried him in a tomb. But here's the crazy thing. 
Our leaders were so threatened by something that he said one time, they thought his followers were going to steal his body. So they go to the Roman governor and say, we need Roman soldiers to stand outside his tomb. And so they put a guard outside the tomb to make sure that nothing happened to his body. But the tomb is empty. I went by there myself. The stone is rolled back, and they couldn't stop. And the wildest thing is his followers are saying that they've seen him alive after his death and that he's resurrected and that they've seen That's the rumors that are going throughout the Jewish community as they go back home from Passover. Now write this down. It is not an accident that God also orchestrated it that massive crowds would also be in the city of Jerusalem to witness the results of the outpouring and the descent of the Holy Spirit at the day of Pentecost as well. So following all those rumors, man, it has time to marinate. And you got to believe after what happened at Passover, I'll bet you this particular Pentecost had many more Jewish people at it because they want to see the fallout, what's been going on in Jerusalem. And what happens? But when they get there, verses 2, 3, and 4, and then they're going to spill out into, I believe, the temple. And the people are going to hear a miraculous thing. These Galilean fishermen who there's no way they could possibly be doing this, are speaking in tongues, and this is a miracle. And then all those Jewish people are going to go home from Pentecost talking about, wow, you, that was one thing, and it just keeps coming. And they're going to talk about the amazing things that happen at the Feast of Pentecost. So let this sink in. God orchestrated it so that almost every Jewish family, every family in the world that worshiped Jehovah God, that worshiped Yahweh, happened to be in Jerusalem for these two occasions. And this is going to help the spread of the gospel. God does things on purpose. This timing was not by accident. Number two, would you notice with me in verses two and three? The temporary signs of the Spirit. The temporary signs of the Spirit. And here I'm talking about verses two and three. We're very temporary, I believe. These two signs, what are they? Look back at verse two. You there? And suddenly there came, a, there came from heaven a sound like a, rushing, like a mighty rushing wind. Verse 3. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So these are the two signs of the arrival of the Holy Spirit. What are the signs? It's the sound of wind. Everybody catch what verse 1 did. In fact, it's in both verses. Do you see the word as? Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. So the word like, and down in verse 3, divided tongues as a fire. So I want to propose to you, you say, Jeff, did it get like really windy in there and the wind is whipping around? I don't think the wind was whipping around. There was a sound of a mighty rushing wind. Do you say there was actual fire? I don't know. There could have been fire, but it's the appearance as of fire in the room. Nobody's getting burned, though, and nobody's hair is getting messed up because of the wind, Right? So there's this sound, and then there's this appearance. If you're taking notes, write the following. Wind is used in the Bible as a symbol for the Holy Spirit. In fact, in the Greek language, which New Testament is written in, the word wind and spirit, small s, wind and spirit, it's actually the same word. Spirit is this word, and wind is this word. Like, it's the same. And so the Bible, on multiple occasions uses wind as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Why would it do that? To find that, go if you would, look at John chapter 3. John chapter 3, I think you see it's coming in your notes. But look over at John chapter 3. And then we'll be able to continue that idea. And by the way, I want to make some very important conclusions in a moment. I believe they're important that maybe we'll answer some of our 
future questions or maybe some of your past questions. Look at John chapter 3. If you were here with us a few weeks ago, you guys remember this? Uh, Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. There is an actual kingdom of heaven. And if you're going to be in the kingdom, if you're even going to see it or be entered, if you're going to enter the kingdom of God, you're going to go to heaven, then you have to be born again. You have to be born twice. And the Lord breaks it down. You have to be born of the flesh. So there has to be a flesh, physical birth, and there has to be a spiritual birth. And then, not on your screen, but look back at verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Now look at verse 8, and let's draw some conclusions why the Bible, why does it use wind as a symbol for the Holy Spirit? Because apparently the Holy Spirit, some things about him is like wind. What are we to learn? Look at verse 8. Jesus says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wishes. The wind is like the Holy Spirit. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. You don't see where the wind... You, well, we can't go outside and say, Oh, look over there. In about 3 minutes and 12 seconds, the wind's going to be here. I see it coming. You don't. Oh, look, I see the wind. You say, Jeff, I do see the wind. No, you don't. You don't see the wind itself. Verse 8 again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes why are we reading this verse? Because Jesus himself says, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So it, Jesus himself says, those who are born, got physical birth, but then you have spiritual birth. Those who are born of the Spirit, it's like that. It's like with the wind. So let's write this thought. John chapter 3 verse number 8 shows us that God's Holy Spirit is like the wind in at least two ways. There may be more than this, but clearly these are the two main things we're supposed to take away from John 3, 8. That we're applying and incorporating into Acts chapter 2, verses 2, verse number 2. Number 1. You already, you already caught it, right? How is the Holy Spirit like wind? Number 1. You cannot see the wind. But you say, I do see the wind. No, what you see is the results of the wind. You see the effect of the wind. So conclusion number one, how is the Holy Spirit like wind? Number one, you cannot see the Holy Spirit physically, but you can definitely see the results of the Holy Spirit's presence and the Holy Spirit's work. I could literally stop and we could just... Preach the remainder of the message right there and just apply that and dig it down and down and down. I cannot see. The Holy Spirit is here this morning. The Holy Spirit is here this morning. But you don't see him. But if you were to know all of the lives that are represented here, what you would see, I, I believe, in my life and hopefully in your life are the results of the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life and His work. That is. So let me pause right there. I want to ask you. You say, I need time to think about it. Go home at some point today. Make a reminder. Evaluate your life before you became a Christian until now. Can you look and say, there is the evidence of the Holy Spirit in my life? Let me ask it more simply. Have you changed? Have you changed? If you say, oh yes, I've changed. All right. How have you changed? I've changed since 1979. Not only did I get bigger, right, and wider. 
got wider, I've got taller, got wider since I was nine. But I've changed, and that is the result of the Holy Spirit. You don't have like a strong wind come through the night and wake up and everything's the same. No, when you get a strong wind come through, you're going to see limbs down, power lines down, sometimes trees down, the patio furniture spread all around. And it doesn't have to be destructive, but can you look in your life and say, I can see the results. Can't see the Spirit, but I can see the results of the Holy Spirit, His presence and His work in my life. So that is a clear thing that we're to learn in John chapter 8, or John chapter 3, verse 8. But the second thing is actually the main application I want to make back to Acts 2. Write this down. How is the Holy Spirit like wind? Number two, the wind blows where it wishes, and then Jesus says, so it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Write this down. The Holy Spirit goes where He wants, when He wants. The Holy Spirit goes wherever He wants, whenever He wants. Say, Jeff, you're saying that as if it's important. The point I want to make is that no one can predict with any certainty the definite movement of the Holy Spirit. No one can do that. The Holy Spirit is like the wind. You see the results of Him, but you can't tell when He's going to arrive and show His power, nor when He's going to show His power over there or over there. You can't predict with certainty the manifestations of the power. Churches, I know they mean well. Well, We've done it for decades and decades. You put it in the bulletin. They put it on their sign outside, and they pull it on their, put it on the, their Facebook page. And they'll say this, revival. And they'll put some dates because they've got a special speaker coming in. You can call it revival and you can have a special speaker come in, but that doesn't mean your people are going to be revived. You may go to someone and say, hey, come to my church Sunday morning and you'll hear everything. And then you can become, you'll become a Christian on Sunday if you come. You don't know that. You cannot tell anyone you're going to become a Christian. Come to this camp meeting and you'll get saved. You'll become a Christian too. You don't know that. You can't predict with any certainty where the wind is going to go and what it's going to do. You can't do that with the Holy Spirit either. Notice again, Acts chapter 2, look at verse 1. Now let's drill down there just a little further. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Isn't that awesome? You remember Some of you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about how the, the 120, they're in this upper room and they're united Get what I'm about to say. Get it. They're united and they're praying together. That's awesome. But I want to be clear that no, everybody listening, no amount of Christian unity and no amount of Christian prayer can guarantee a powerful movement of God's Spirit because God's Spirit is God Himself. And his powerful movement is completely his sovereign prerogative. It is his prerogative. I know right now some of you may be thinking, what? Jeff, if we're in unity and we're fasting and we're praying, then God has to do this and this. No, he doesn't. He doesn't have to do anything. He's completely sovereign. He's like the wind. I go where I want to go and I do it when I want to do it. This is totally up to God. I want to go further. Especially our regulars, I want you to listen. Guys, I believe that our sin can hinder the powerful manifestation of God's Spirit 
By that, I don't mean that our sin is stronger than him. I just mean that God's Holy Spirit, because he's holy, is very sensitive to sin. And I believe that if we have known sin among us, not just the person in the pulpit, not just the worship team, not just the pastoral staff, not just the elders and Sunday school teachers. If we, have, if we just allow known sin to just be running rampant and just to lie dormant among our people, then we very well may be hindering the work of God. So I want to be clear. Our sin, I think, can hinder the powerful manifestation of the Holy Spirit. But the opposite of that is not true. No amount of human effort is ever going to force God's hand. Watch. You say, so then, Jeff, our unity doesn't matter and our prayers don't matter? Is that what you're saying? I'll tell you just a snapshot of me. I, Grace View regulars, don't you listen. I beg God to manifest His presence among us. When I'm saying that, I'm talking about the Holy Spirit. I beg God to manifest His presence among us in a palatable way. I beg Him. I beg you to join me in asking God to manifest His presence every time we meet in a recognizable way, not just us knowing he's here. I'm asking you, join me in that, in begging. I'm asking you, please pray for me. Pray for our church. I beg you to beg God to manifest himself and pour out a mighty movement within our, our church, within me. When every time we sing and preach, pray for that. If you don't, shame on you. Pray for that. But my point is, we can pray, but we still cannot strong arm God. We cannot force him because God is God. We don't just force him. You say, well, this happened because they're all unified and they were all praying. No, it happened after days. They didn't, if it was all up to them, why didn't it happen in the second day or the third day? It happened in God's good time on the day of Pentecost. Now, last thing on that. You say, okay, Jeff, you've kind of seemingly downplayed prayer and our unity. And holiness among us, no, I'm, ex- I'm building that up as very important. I'm just saying none of that causes us to earn God's favor. And none of that causes us to be able to force his hand. Furthermore, we can't work it up. You cannot work up a powerful movement of the Holy Spirit. You can work up music and it'll make you emotional. But that doesn't mean it's a powerful movement of the Holy Spirit. What I'm trying to tell you is pray, beg God... Confess your sins, live a godly life, live in unity with one another, and that is a blessable life. Notice, God blesses that kind of life, but it is not us earning. That is the more blessable life. So I'm asking you to do do these activities that are blessable activities, but we still are not earning His favor. Last thought in verse number 2, and then a brief thought, very similar to it in verse 3, and then we'll go on to verse 4. Okay, quick thought of verse 2. Suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Mighty rushing wind, mighty rushing wind. What is mighty? Okay, it's, it's wind. It's rushing wind. But it's not just rushing wind. It's mighty rushing wind. Well, man, that sounds like what? That sounds like a, what is a mighty rushing wind? Sounds like a what or a what? Either a tornado or a hurricane. Now, um, I've been in neither one. Particularly, 
in a small space, the more powerful of those two is the tornado, right? I've never been in a tornado. Who here has been in a tornado? I'm sure somebody has. A few. Well, it looks like we've got about 15 or 20 people. I've never been in a tornado, but those who have, many of them usually say the same thing about how it sounds. And y'all have heard this. A tornado, they tell us, sounds like a what? A train. Would you notice, suddenly there came this sound, and if it was like that, it would be the sound of a train. So picture our auditorium here. I know there are different sized locomotives, but if there wasn't a locomotive in this room, and it was all filled with steam and ready to go, and that thing went off all at once, what would that do to us? What would that, you say, that would be the sound of a mighty rushing wind. Here's the point. These people in AD 30 have never heard anything like this. And it was suddenly, it's not like they hear, do you hear like a dog whistle? And it grows to a, a bumblebee buzzing. And it grows. And a little swarm. Are you hearing me? What's going on? That's not it. To where eventually, you know, no. Wow! Like, man, if they were praying... And their heads bowed and their eyes are closed. It's not anymore. They're not, they're no, their heads not bowed and eyes not closed anymore. They're now looking up. This has shockingly tore them out of the frame, as it were. No wind, but the sound of wind. And when they look, what do they see? They see verse 3. Again, divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So the word as shows us there's no actual fire. Does it seem? Possibly it does, but... And I'm going to offer to you two things. I believe it was both. What does the word divide? I'm going to be very brief here. Divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. I believe divided had to do with this flame appearance. Took on the shape of a tongue, but not just a tongue, a divided tongue. Very poor illustration, but as it were, there's a tongue, a divided tongue. Cloven tongue. I believe divided modifies the appearance of the flame in a split-looking tongue. But it's more than that. I believe divided describes the process, the phenomenon of this flame as it is dividing and splitting off. And I don't know who it went and set over top of first. And everybody's like, and they're like, what? Over you. And then all of a sudden, it's, and by the end, it's over top of everyone. So much so that these two signs fully have their attention that the Holy Spirit has arrived. I use the word temporary signs because I believe that those two signs ceased in the upper room that day. So they're going to spill out, no doubt, into the temple. And I don't think that's still over them. And certainly this sound is not still in the upper room. And that leads us down to verse 4. Notice number 3 this morning out of verse 4. The filling and the effect of the Holy Spirit. The filling and the effect of the Spirit. The filling of the Spirit. The effect of the, of the filling of the Spirit. Look at verse 4. So the sound hits. The sight hits. Has their attention. Verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. All right. Everybody with me? Here we go. What we need to do is take that phrase... They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. We need to define that phrase. 
We need to not only define it, we need to contrast it with some other phrases that sometimes get mixed in together, and we need to compare it with some other phrases. Write this down. When we're going to use biblical terminology, we need to rightly define biblical terminology. Guys, this is important. This is very important because a lot of people go around using terminology in the Bible, but they don't let the Bible define the terms. They take Bible terms and they put an American denominational spin on the terms. We can't do that. So the Bible has a term of elders, right? Here at Graceview, we have elders. Do you know what? Most churches in, in the South here don't have elders. Most churches in Anderson County don't have, they don't call them elders. That's fine. I'm glad we do. But some use the term elders to mean nothing more than like the old guys that sign contracts about the property. And you never hear anything from them. Apparently, they probably meet once a year. And they're the elders. Again, they kind of oversee. They're the trustees of the property. That is not the idea the New Testament gives of elders. It's just putting a little American spin on a Bible word. We need to write, if we're going to use Bible terms, and we should, we need to rightly define these terms. So what I want to do is take this term in verse 4, and I'm going to hit it last. But first, we need to define two other things in association with it. And I understand. Some of you are like, Jeff, I already know. I've heard you talk on this a few years ago. I know these, these two terms, these two, these two other. We need to go through it in a way that right at the outset of chapter 2, we understand what this means. So we all need to do this study together. The first term I want us to look at, you won't see it in verse 2. It's not in there. Nor is the second term that I'm going to cover in verse, in verse 2, 3, or 4. You won't see it in there. But you see the third phrase that I'm going to look at, the filling of the Spirit. They were all filled with the Spirit. So watch the first one. Hold your spot here. Would you join me? 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Flip over there. Because I want us to talk for a moment about the baptism of the Spirit. The baptism of the Spirit. Now I'm going to be totally transparent on what I'm about to say. But I feel very comfortable in the conclusion I'm going to draw. You do not see baptism of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2 verse 4. But, everybody with me? All three terms that we're going to cover in the next few minutes, all three terms happen simultaneously at the same time, though all, the only term we have is filled with the Spirit. But they were also baptized in the Spirit because that's what was prophesied back in chapter 1 verse 5. Jesus tells his apostles, go stay in Jerusalem, wait for the promise of the Fathering, which is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and it'll be not many days. If it didn't happen in Acts chapter 2 verse 4, then when did it happen? And we're going to see here that it's spoken about as having happened. So nothing greater than, than what we read in chapter 2 verse 4 happened. And so we know that it happened simultaneously, unseen to them. But at the same time, all three things we're going to cover happen for the first time in the church back in chapter 2 verse 4. But notice, what is this baptism of the Spirit? The reason I mainly wanted you to flip over there is because I wanted you to see the context in front of the verse you're going to see on the screen. We're going to read verse 13, but look at verse 12. 1 Corinthians 12, look at verse 12. This is important. You see the context. For just, Paul says, for just as the body, that's this one, mine, yours, 
For just as the body is one and has many members, has many parts, and all the members of the body, and all, all the members of the body, though many are one body. You see the context. One body. And then Paul says, so it is with Christ. So your body has a lot of parts, but it is still one body. A lot of members of your body, but one body. With that being said, look at chapter 12, verse 13. How is it like Christ? How is your human body similar to the body of Christ? For in one spirit, we were, what's the next word? All baptized, that's a Bible term. This is what was promised in chapter 1, verse 5 of Acts. For in one spirit, we, Paul's talking to saved people in Corinth, Greece. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, one body. Slaves or free, one body. And all were made to drink of one spirit. Write this down. So Jeff, what is this baptism of the spirit? Now, before you write it, everybody catch what? Listen, listen. I'm going to give you what the baptism of the Spirit is now. Just know that what we're reading in Acts 2 was the first time. But now, after that first, it has to be a first time. But now, after the first time, the baptism, that baptism of the Spirit, here's what baptism of the Spirit, according to the Bible, here's what it means now. Write it down. The baptism of the Spirit is now the event... At the moment of salvation, where a new believer is once and for all time placed, immersed, is the idea, baptized, placed into the spiritual body of Christ, which is the church. That's the baptism of the Spirit. Now, you you, you may be hearing that and saying, okay, I wrote it down. I, I need you to really get the concept. I need you to get this. You need to get this. The baptism of the Spirit, and this is very poor right here, very poor. It's a poor illustration, but I want you to picture the Spirit of God. Spirit of God. And over here is all of us, lost humanity. The baptism of the Spirit is when the Holy Spirit takes us from being outside of Him, and He places us into the Holy Spirit. And here we go by the billions But we don't just kind of float around in there. In the spirit, we form a body, which is the spiritual body of Christ called the church. And we're connected because of that to people, our brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world back 2,000 years ago and all the way until the Lord comes back. That's called the church. So we're outside the spirit, the Holy Spirit, and we're placed in the Holy Spirit once in there. We form a body together. And write this down. The purpose of the Holy Spirit baptism, and there's a reason I'm saying it this way, the purpose is not to separate an elite group of Christians from the less elite Christians. The purpose is to unify all Christians. That's the purpose of the Holy Spirit baptism. And that's what happened. That's the first initial Installment of that in chapter 2, verse 4 of Acts. Now, some of you probably know why I said it the way that I just said it, and others of you probably are like, why did he just emphasize that that way? Use Bible terms and use Bible definitions, okay? Some of us have heard some people use this phrase, 
And here's, they, they link it as, as though it's one and the same with the baptism of the Spirit. You ever been slain in the Spirit? Okay, that is not in here. Being slain in the Spirit is not in the Bible. They made that up. And when you make it up and just mix it in, and like, oh, that is that, and we're just going to use them interchangeably. No. Some people use the idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit as if there's this group of like elite special forces Christians. They've received the baptism of the Spirit. And there's this whole other group of Christians. They have not yet received the baptism of the Spirit. And they're hoping for it. And they just haven't jumped through the right hoops. Look what the Bible says. So let's let the facts of the Word of God define our theology. For in one Spirit... We were all baptized, placed into, immersed into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And all were made to drink of one body. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Does everybody get that? We're not in the Holy Spirit. We're not in the spiritual body of Christ. We get saved. At that moment, we're placed once and for all. We're baptized in the Holy Spirit. You're in 1 Corinthians 13. Go back to chapter 3. 1 Corinthians 3. Flip over there. 1 Corinthians 3, let's get our second term. And again, you'll need to go home and look at the context of all this. Make sure I'm not twisting it and manipulating it and misapplying. We'll be here all afternoon if we give all the background. And you don't want that. Look at verse 16. Here we go. Paul asked the Corinthians. So I'm going to tell you, what's our second term? First term, baptism of the Holy Spirit. Second term, you're not going to see it in Acts 2, but it's implied that this happens. Verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Taste that. Do you hear that as different from the baptism of the Spirit? Remember, we're all out here the Spirit, we're placed into the Spirit and we form one body. But now, Paul says, it's a different concept. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? And by the way, the you there is plural. He's talking to saved Christians in Corinth and it applies to us here at Grace View this morning. Everybody in, I don't know who you are, but everybody in here who's truly saved, do you not know that we all are together? We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Do you not know that? That God's spirit dwells in us? You say, oh, so it's a corporate thing. It is, but it goes further than that. Look at chapter 6. 1 Corinthians, flip over to chapter 6. Flip over there, good. Here are a few pages. Got your pad, scroll down. Chapter 6, look at verse 19. Same idea, slightly different. And it's the context of sexual sin. And Paul is preaching why Christians should not partake in sexual sins with their body. Why? Verse 19, or do you not know that your body, that means your individual body, you, if you're a Christian, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You're not your own. Read it again. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are not your own. Leave 1 Corinthians. Keep those two things together. Do you, do you all not know that you're... That the Spirit is in you all? Do you, Christian, not know that the Spirit has come into your body? That you, like my body right here, according to this, has the Holy Spirit living inside me. Now Romans chapter 8. Flip back there. Flip it, eight, Romans 8. Very important. We've looked at it before. 
need to look at it again this morning. So if you're unsaved, you cannot possibly please God. You can't please God. No matter what you do, even if you're trying to do the right thing, you're not doing it in the power of God. And thus it's prideful, not acceptable as enough. Verse 9. But look at verse 9. If you're a Christian, pay attention verse 9 because this talks about us. You, however, if you're a Christian, you should hear this as you. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. You're in the Spirit. You're baptized in the Spirit. So we're baptized in Him. If He's in you. And again, we have them in our county. And they mean well and we love them. But some would have us to believe, oh right, there's Christians that have the Holy Spirit. And there's those Christians that don't yet have the Holy Spirit. And maybe you're thinking, Jeff, I'm one of those Christians that doesn't yet have the Holy Spirit. Well, that doesn't square with the Bible because verse 9 of Romans 8 says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. There's no such thing as I'm one of those Christians that doesn't yet have the Holy Spirit. I haven't, I haven't quite got the second blessing yet. I've got salvation. I'm thankful for that. One day, boy, I hope I receive the Spirit. I'm, I'm praying for it and I'm asking God for it. Okay, you're praying for something. If you really are a Christian, you already have. Anyone who does not have the Spirit does not belong to Him. Write this down. Here's our thought. The indwelling of the Spirit. That's not, we're not talking about the baptism anymore. The indwelling of the Spirit is when at the moment of salvation. Notice both of our terms so far had that same idea. The indwelling of the Spirit is when at the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit enters and permanently abides in a believer's physical body. You should see the difference. One is spiritual and I'm spiritually placed into the spiritual body of Christ in the Holy Spirit. I'm baptized in the Spirit, immersed. But this is where God's Holy Spirit actually comes and dwells permanently. Enters, he enters and permanently dwells in my actual physical body. That's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And that's a different idea. While I'm here, I need to touch on this. So a few weeks ago we talked about how a lot of people reach wrong conclusions on the book of Acts. Because they don't understand the dynamic that they're, this is a transition book. So let's just be honest. Everybody with me? The book of Acts starts out with no Christians indwelled by the Holy Spirit. But I'm going to propose to you that by the time the record, the history that is recorded in Acts, by the time those events are finished, all Christians on the earth, and ever since then, they all have the Holy Spirit. Why would I say that? Here's what you're going to find. Jewish Christians in Jerusalem did not have the Holy Spirit living in them. Then Acts chapter 2 verse 4 happens. Chapter number 8. They're going to go to half Jewish people, the Samaritans. They're going to believe in Jesus. But they're not going to yet have the Holy Spirit either. And then the apostles, Peter and John, are going to lay their hands on them. And they'll receive the Holy Spirit. And in chapter number 10, we Gentiles, they, Cornelius gets saved. And the Holy Spirit comes Inside the Gentiles. But even as late as chapter 19. So we just, did you hear it? Chapter 2, chapter 8, chapter 10. But even in chapter 19, we're going to find some followers of John the Baptist who don't yet know all the facts about Jesus. And Paul's going to come up to them and he's going to say, Did you receive the Holy Spirit? And they're going to be, We haven't even heard that the Holy Spirit's come. Well, then what were you baptized into? Long story short, we'll get there eventually if the Lord wills. When we do, here's what we're going to find. 
that when they put their faith and they get further understanding, then they too will receive the Holy Spirit. So we got these four times. Now watch. That's Acts chapter 19. That's at the start of the third missionary journey of Paul. This is the start of the third missionary journey of Paul. We still have people that don't yet have the Holy Spirit. But in Acts chapter 20, by then, we're three years further, time-wise, further into Paul's missionary journey. He's been in Ephesus. And then he's going to go on his way back. He's going to boomerang over to Corinth. And while he's in Corinth, later, three years after chapter 19, he's in chapter 20. Three years later, that's where he's going to write the book of Romans. And that's when, from that moment, so whatever's going on here, people... You can have believers without the Holy Spirit. But by chapter 20 and onward, this later progressive revelation outranks everything that people have read about and seen historically before it. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Or do I need to take about nine more minutes? Acts 20's progressive revelation, in other words, what God reveals here later, outranks what's been before it. Excuse me. Excuse me, hope my throat doesn't do what it sometimes has done years ago. All right, I think we're going to be okay, Lord willing. All right. Now let's go to the third. Nope. Write this quick note. If someone says, well, I don't yet have the Spirit, like some in our county would teach their people, then that would mean this. To lack the Holy Spirit is not to lack a supposed second blessing of God. I just haven't got the second blessing yet. To lack the Holy Spirit is not to lack a supposed second blessing of God. It is to lack salvation itself. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't have salvation. Because everybody who's truly saved has the Spirit indwelling them. And with that, we now go back to our term in Acts 2. As soon as you've written that, go back to Acts chapter 2. And I'm already in verse 4. Acts chapter 2, verse 4. And, and they, these 120 in the upper room... And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. When did that happen? Acts chapter 2, verse 4. Time-wise, chronologically, Acts 2, 4, this group was filled with the Holy Spirit. Flip from there over to chapter 4. Flip to chapter 4. This is, this is an easy exercise. Flip just a couple pages away. Acts chapter 4, look at verse 8. I'm not going to dig down in the context. Peter and John's been arrested, and now they're in front of the Sanhedrin, same Sanhedrin that condemned Jesus and harassed him and killed him. But something happens in Acts 4. Then, note the word then, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. So Peter's filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, verse 4. But uh, yes, and then he gets to chapter 4, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, he starts talking. He gets filled with the Holy Spirit in front of the Sanhedrin. He gets filled with the Holy Spirit and he starts talking. Flip a page if it's like that in your Bible. Look at verse 31. They release Peter and John. They end up going to their friends. They have a prayer meeting. And at the end of their very specific prayer, verses 23 down to verse 30, finally the prayer finishes. This is a group of people. Look at verse 31. And when they had prayed, when they had prayed... The place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak. They were all filled with the Spirit 
and continue to speak the word of God with boldness. Notice what happens. When they had prayed, doesn't mean they earned it by praying. It just means God honored their prayer and then he shook the building and he filled them. And the result was they started continuing to speak. Remember that. Filled with the Spirit in chapter 2 verse 4. Peter is filled with the Spirit again in chapter 4 verse 8. He's in this same crowd. Chapter 4 verse 31. He gets filled with the Spirit again. Each time they're speaking. Now hold your spot in Acts one more time. Let's go one last place. I believe it. One last place. And that's Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5. Because we need to define what is this filling of the Spirit. Ephesians 5 verse 18. The Bible says, and do not get drunk with wine. And do not get drunk with wine. Why? What's the problem with that? That is debauchery. You know what debauchery is? That's living in excess. That's excessive indulgence. It's not just indulgence. It's excessive. And that's why you got, the reason you got drunk, you were excessive in your indulgence. You enjoyed the sensuality and the way it made you feel, so you kept going and you were overly indulgent. It's debauchery. Now, that's not the main point I want to make. Verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine. There's a command for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. We're told. You're told. We are told. Be filled with the Spirit. Now, let's go back to Acts chapter 2. What is the filling of the Spirit? I hope you will sense the difference in these three terms because they are all different. Write this down. The filling of the Spirit is the state of when a person is controlled by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of empowered service, empowered sanctification. And I I realize I just used a word that quite a few in the room, you're like, I don't know what that word means, just keep going. No. Sanctification is when God's Spirit in us causes us to become more and more and more like Christ. It isn't us, but He makes us more holy and godly. So what is this filling of the Spirit? The filling of the Spirit is the state of being controlled by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of empowered service for Him, empowered sanctification, but primarily, primarily empowered speaking. Now, I'm going to put another little addition on there that I'm going to offer to you because of Ephesians 5.18. Part. Can I just, I probably should have put the word part. Don't, don't miss it. Part of being filled with the Spirit is to consciously invite the Holy Spirit, He's a real person inside of you if you're a Christian, invite His thoughts And his feelings and his actions to become your thoughts and feelings and actions. That's part of what it is to be filled with the Spirit. To consciously have this conversation. Holy Spirit, I don't want to just be indwelt. I know I've been baptized in you. And I know you've indwelled me. But I want you to fill me, control me. For greater service, for greater, more empowered sanctification, so that my holiness goes quicker, you need to do this, Lord, but also that my speech will be empowered. And I want your thoughts, the way you think and the way you you feel, and your actions to become mine. 
So just control me so that I'm, there's two of us in here, but I want you to dominate. That's the idea of being filled with. So somebody may be thinking this. Okay. Preacher sounds like, sounds like if when I get filled, okay, I've been baptized in the Spirit with all the other Christians. Holy Spirit comes in all of us, but in me individually, right? The indwelling. And then when I get filled, I get like more of the Holy Ghost. No. You don't get any more of the Holy Ghost. He gets more of you. Can he have more of you? Are you sitting there this morning saying, he has all of me? Or is it like, oh, he has a portion of my will. Being filled is when he has all of you. You don't get any more of him. You have all you're going to get. Does he have all of you? Now, I need to take a moment and let's review. Here comes a verbal exam. You ready? Everybody ready? I want you to get it. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit and us being baptized in the Holy Spirit are both one-time events that happen at the moment we get saved. And they're permanent. Watch. But the filling of the Spirit... What we have in Acts chapter 2 verse 4, it's unique, it's different, it's separate. Why? Write this down. The filling of the Spirit is repeated again and again. I showed you two examples of it. It's repeated again and again in the book of Acts. In fact, the filling of the Spirit is even commanded of Christians. Christians are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. We're commanded to consciously invite the Holy Spirit to to have His way in us. And to let him. And when he does, it always affects us a certain way that we'll finish the message with. Always affects us a certain way. We're commanded. You're not commanded to be baptized in the Spirit. That's done the moment you believe. You didn't do anything. It was done to you. You're not commanded to... Nowhere in the Bible does it say, be indwelt with the Holy Spirit. You're not commanded to be indwelt. It happens. We are commanded to be filled. I want to borrow from Warren Wiersbe. I've got to read it slow because each phrase, I want you to picture it. Based on what we just read, here comes Wearsby. It's not in your handout, so just hear it. He writes, the baptism of the Spirit. I want everybody, as I say these words, to picture the doctrine. He writes, the baptism of the Spirit means that I belong to His body. The fullness, feeling, the fullness of the Spirit means that my body belongs to Him. The baptism is final. The fullness is repeated as we trust God for new power to witness. Watch. He writes, the baptism involves all believers, all other believers. They've all been baptized. While the fullness is personal and individual. And he says these are two distinct experiences. Just like there's justification and there's our spiritual adoption. Those are awesome things. They're not the same thing. They're both great things. They're distinct. Now that you're thoroughly confused. Go home and just rehearse those three notes. Until you understand the difference between the baptism. The indwelling. And I'm not satisfied to just be indwelled. I want you to control. I want you to feel me Holy Spirit. Now look at the second part, and let's finish this morning. The second part of verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And some of you are like, so is Brother Jeff getting ready to cover 
all, all of speaking in tongues right here in the last few minutes? Thankfully, no. Okay, we're going to have to come back to this probably New Year's Day. But look what the Bible says. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. All right. What I'm going to say in the next few minutes is extremely important and it's laying groundwork for where we're heading. What is unfortunate is that a lot of people, and some people even in this room and some watching or will watch this later, when they think of the book of Acts, they only think of chapter 2 verse 4. B. They think of Acts, they think of speaking in tongues. As if that's the main thing the book of Acts is about. By doing that, that is wrong. That is placing an overemphasis on something that was done, that was real, that was a miracle. The miracle of speaking in tongues was to get people's attention for the message of the apostles. What is dominant is the message of the gospel of the apostles. More important than us drilling down in verse 4 about what is speaking in tongues is what's going to come in verses 14 to 41. That's more important than the speaking in tongues. You say, well, that's what I think of when I think of the book of Acts. That's because you don't know the book of Acts. You need to learn it. You need to spend some time in it. And we're going to, by the way. Notice this. So speaking in tongues is not dominant. The apostles' message is dominant. Now, I'm going to go back and forth. I want to be balanced. I'm after what the Bible teaches. And if in the process of studying this, the Lord shows me something different, I'm going to go with it. And by the way, I'm going to say some things that many of you in here will agree with. That's right, Jeff, you tell them. And then I'm going to say something in a moment that some of you are going to go like, what? Are you one of them? What's, where are you at? Hear both sides. Speaking in tongues is real. Anyone who tries to dispel it is dispelling Truth. It's real. Speaking tongues is real. But, don't answer out loud. Do you know how many books in the New Testament talk about speaking in tongues? Some people would have you think it is dominant all over the New Testament. We know it's in the book of Acts. It's in the book of Acts and 1 Corinthians. That's it. The other 25 books do not even mention it. And yet, there's these whole denominations built on. You say, well, Jeff, it's very prominent in the book of Acts. Hang on. There's 28 chapters in the book of Acts. It only shows up in chapter 2, in chapter 10, and chapter 19. Only three. Y'all help me out. Help me out. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned something to you that shows up at least in 12 chapters in the book of Acts. What was it? Two words. We did it Wednesday night. Say it louder. Corporate prayer. So here there's people that think the book, book of Acts is about speaking in tongues because it shows up three times in one of the two books. Not 25 other chapters. Corporate prayer is way more dominant than speaking in tongues. But it's real. So what's going to happen is we're going to look at speaking in tongues in greater detail, Lord willing, on New Year's Day. And I don't know if it will spill further than that. But this morning I want to give you two thoughts and only the first one is in your handout. Two thoughts. I'm just laying groundwork and we'll be wrapping up in a moment. Thought number one is this. Verses 11, th four, verses 4 through 11 are going to make it extremely clear. The Bible goes out of its way to make very clear that speaking in tongues in Acts chapter 2 is 
the ability to speak. Everybody catch it. It's the ability to speak in Acts 2 in known human languages without having learned those known human languages. Bible's real clear. And you'll see it if you come back. These are, they're speaking in known human languages that they've never studied. And that in Acts 2 is the gift of speaking in tongues. So there's that. But the second thing I want to impress upon all of our people here this morning. You ready? Because God is sovereign. God is sovereign and you're not and I'm not and we're not. And the Baptists are not. Because God is sovereign, He can manifest His power and the display of the filling of the Holy Spirit in any way He wants. Including the ways that He expresses it in verses 2, 3, and 4. God is sovereign. He can manifest the filling of the Spirit any way He wants. If He wants to do it through the sound of wind or the appearance of fire, or the speaking in tongues, that is God's prerogative. Go ahead and try to put God in your little theological box, and you're going to get embarrassed. He can do what He wants. Listen, He's sovereign. He can do something at this time period, and then stop doing it, and do it again if He wants. He can not do it in this area, or that area, that area, that area, and He can choose to do it in this area. Well, I live over here. So, I don't believe anything. Go ahead and put him in your little theological box. Be careful. He's God and you're not. So, we got to be balanced. Got to be real balanced. So, my last thought before I give you the last note. I wrote this out yesterday morning. The coming of the Holy Spirit just did certain things for the church. Did it for me. You got to get this. The coming, of, and I've already talked about this first part, but I, I think I got some clarity yesterday morning. The Holy Spirit coming gives Christians assurance that we're the children of God. It gives us the ability to understand the Bible where we couldn't before. I become a Christian now; I don't understand it all, but it's starting to make more and more sense. That's the Holy Spirit. I have guidance. I don't have to cast lots to make my decisions. The very counselor himself lives inside of me now. I have guidance. Those who are led by the Spirit, they are the children of God, Romans chapter 8. So we have guidance. And oh, by the way, he helps us to be sanctified. He helps us in the sanctification process. Who does that? The Holy Spirit does that. Four great things. But the context of Acts chapter 2 verse 4 takes us back. To chapter number 1. And what is the context? It is this unique power. The coming of the Holy Spirit is to give us unique power to speak. As witnesses to Jesus. Now I need to go that over one more time. I'm going to read it. Because what I'm about to do. I'm going to take our three terms. And I'm going to take what I just said. These five things that the Holy Spirit does. And there's more. I'm just choosing these five. Do you remember the five? He gives us assurance. He helps us understand the scripture. He gives us guidance in life. And he helps us become more and more godly. We have more and more victory over sin. 
And I'm going to take our three terms and I'm going to put two together and I'm going to put one together and I'm going to tell you what I think how those five things fall out in those three categories. Watch. As of December 3rd, yesterday, 2022, I am leaning that a believer's assurance, understanding of Scripture, guidance, and sanctification are accomplished primarily as a result of our permanent baptism and indwelling of the Spirit. I believe those four things are primarily tied to the permanent baptism and the permanent indwelling of the Spirit. What are they again? I know I'm a Christian because the Spirit lives in me and I've been baptized. That's a reality. I understand the Scripture because the Holy Spirit lives in me. I have guidance because He dwells in me. And I'm going to grow in sanctification because the Holy Spirit lives in me. The Spirit of God. That doesn't come and leave you the same. There's going to be change. Those are the result of a permanent baptism and indwelling the Spirit. But I believe the filling of the Spirit is different. It's unique. It's not permanent. And it is given to empower our witness for Christ in specific ways. See what we just did? These other four wonderful things is because God lives in you. What's this filling for? It's for your speaking. Primarily, I'm offering that. Last thought and then your note. For real. I believe part, part of the purpose of speaking in tongues in Acts chapter 2. you got to get this. I believe part of the purpose of tongues in chapter 2 was to... So here they come out and they're speaking known human languages they've never studied. And people are going to be amazed. You're going to see it. You ought to go ahead and start reading. Like, How are they doing that? I'm from here and I'm from here and I'm from all these like 15 different regions. And this person's hearing that person speaking their language. And that one's hearing that person speaking their language. We know you. You're the Galileans. You guys have it. This is, this is impossible. How is this happening? I believe the filling of the Spirit, in this case manifested by them speaking in tongues, was for at least three reasons. It was, number one, to get the attention of the hearers. To let them know, hey, pay attention. Pay, pay attention. What they're doing is important. And number two, not only that, but it's to make the speakers, so here I'm a hearer, they're over there speaking in known human languages they've never studied, and one of them is my foreign language, and they're not from our group. We travel from Rome together, and we speak in Latin, and they don't know that. How is this possible? Now all of a sudden, I need to listen because it's important, but also they're believable. Something about this sounds believable. And not only is it believable, but it's going to, number three, it's going to help the hearer have clarity. They're going to hear it in their own language, their own home language, their heart language. And it's going to give clarity to the subject content. Did you catch those three things? Why, one, part of the reason why the Lord is having them speak in tongues appears to me is so that everybody will stand up and take notice. Hey, this is important. Never seen anything like this. And then number two, they're believable. 3,000 are going to believe what they're saying. And then, I've never heard it that way before. It is suddenly clear. It makes sense. That is why they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues on that day. I want to contend that when a person, you, are filled with the Spirit and you start speaking, 
God does the same things today through you, and you don't have to speak in tongues to do it. When God fills you and you start sharing the mighty works of God and the gospel, then all of a sudden, something about you tells people like, I I need to listen to this. And they sound believable. I'm about to do something radically crazy. I'm going to give my life to Jesus because that person, something in what they're saying is very powerful. And I've never heard it like this. This makes sense. I think I know how to do it. That's what the purpose of the filling of the Spirit is. You ever been filled with the Spirit? Your last note is being filled with the Spirit, being Spirit-filled always affects a person's speech. Always. It'll affect what you don't say. You won't be lying. You won't be angry. You won't be bitter and unforgiving. You won't be gossiping. You won't be blaspheming because you're filled with the Spirit. But more than what you don't say, it affects what you do say. Heads bowed, eyes closed this morning. Heads bowed, eyes closed. In a moment, we'll pray. Just a few questions. I invite you to stay in tune. Hey, really evaluate yourself. Have you ever been baptized in the Spirit? You say, Jeff, I've never fallen on the floor and started shaking and spoken in time. That's not what I'm asking. I'm asking if you've ever been baptized in the Spirit. If, you're, if, you're, if you've ever put your faith in Jesus, you were baptized in the Spirit. If you've never done that, then you're not baptized in the Spirit. Does the Holy Spirit indwell you? Is that a fact of your life? If so, I want to invite you right now. Everybody who would say, Jeff, oh, I'm a Christian. Do you see, I really want you to go home and do this. This is so important. Do you see the effects of the Holy Spirit's presence and work in your life like we see the effects of wind? Can you look in your life and say, I have been affected. Oh, he's changed me. Secondly, especially our regulars, but this is for everyone this morning. Do you have any known sin? I'm not saying sin. I'm saying, do you have any known sin that is unconfessed that you're just like enjoying and wallowing in or at least trying to just abide there? If you do, please get that right with God. You're hindering the work of the Spirit in your life and you're likely hindering the work of the Spirit in our church. Get it right. Confess it. Receive forgiveness of the Lord. Repent. Turn from it. Don't go back to it. Hate your sin. Do you have known sin in your life? Third, we can never dictate to God and say, well, Lord, we did this little checklist. You've got to do that. No, we can't dictate to God. But can I ask you, do you pray for the manifested, palatable, recognizable power of the Holy Spirit to be among us here at Grace View? Do you? Please, please join me and others in that. Please pray for our church. Please, he doesn't have to, but God generally blesses those kinds of prayer. And then lastly, you, hey, you say you're a Christian, all right? You are commanded, you're commanded to be filled with the Spirit, according to Ephesians 5.18. So I ask you, are you right now? Are you right now? We're commanded to be filled with the Spirit. And I know we don't do it all the time, but let's leave. 
this morning filled with the Spirit. Would you right now invite the Holy Spirit? Talk to the Holy Spirit. Yes, there's God the Father, and yes, there's God the Son. Talk to the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, thank you for living in me. Thank you for baptizing me. But I want you, I want you to control me to such a degree, like right now, in this moment, that my very thoughts are your thoughts. I want to start thinking the way you think. Help me to feel the way you feel. And then, Lord, help me to act and speak the way you act and speak. Help me to love the Father and love the Son and love souls and love the Word of God and love the brothers like you do. Help me to be just like you. Control me right now this morning. And in that, what you're saying is, Holy Spirit, I want you to empower my speech, my witness. I dare you to pray that. And then, and then, go out and start talking about the Lord. Go start talking about the Lord and let Him empower and fill you. And make your speech effective. Would you stand with me this morning? Father, I thank you for our time together. Thank you for the word. Father, I beg you, Lord. I beg you again. You owe us nothing. You don't owe me anything. But Lord, I pray that you would just let us be a church that doesn't just gather together and feel good emotions and celebrate some good doctrinal truths. Father, I pray that mainly, mainly as we go out, that you will fill us with the Holy Spirit. In a way that we are just making converts and disciples all around this county and this state and wherever you may take us. Lord, fill our speech with your power. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. We ask it for the glory of Christ and in his name. Amen. Amen. Have a great week.